If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we'll be chatting with Shelby Roberts about evaluation. Today's guest is a principal consultant with SSR Advisors, an evaluation consulting firm. And Shelby and I are going to be talking about the essential advice my mother gave me decades ago. She said, if you clean as you go along, you won't end up with a big mess at the end of the day. And you know, believe it or not, at the age of 10, I did not follow that advice. And I almost always ended up at the end of the day with a big mess that I then had to clean up. So Shelby helps nonprofits identify some simple elements of data collection that they can add to their daily routines and weekly routines to make grant preparation and grant reporting so much easier. Think about the beauty of that. You can put easy-to-apply steps into your day that will capture the information you know you're going to need in the not-too-distant future. When the time is ready to complete that grant proposal, or if you've already got the grant, when the time is ready to complete the report, then you are ready to go. And you can also use this in your major donor work, your PR work, social media, everywhere else, because you've been cleaning as you went along. Now, I'm excited to share with you that Shelby is one of our two for guests because she also brings expertise as a board officer helping implement a strategic plan for an Atlanta-based nonprofit. And I just have to say, be still my heart because I definitely want to dig into that as well. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you'll know that I am a strategic planning evangelist. In, over the course of my career, I have been a case manager, a development director, an executive director, and of course now a nonprofit consultant. And can I say that in absolutely every instance, nonprofits with strategic plans are healthier and more effective than those without. Now there is a caveat, and that's that plans that are hastily thrown together just to meet a funder's requirement or a board chair who says, oh, we need a strategic plan, those plans are pretty much meaningless. 
a real strategic plan, a process that is immersive, that looks at all the moving parts of an organization, requires commitment and resources. Now, you might be saying to yourself, my organization doesn't have the resources. We don't have the thirteen dollars or $25,000 to hire an actual full-service consultant in our area. So hold that thought, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of this podcast. But meanwhile, let us welcome Shelby as we talk about evaluation and strategic planning implementation. Hey, Shelby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. It's great to be with you here today. So tell me a little bit about the kind of work you do as an evaluation consultant. So my main project right now is a little bit of an evaluator's dream because I was able to be involved in the writing of the proposal, the writing of the implementation plan, the writing of the evaluation plan, and now we're coming to the end of the project. So if you ever ask an evaluator, when should the evaluation begin? It's always before the project does. And so I've been able to do this with my um, the main project that I work on right now, which has been really exciting. But what we're going to talk about today is when things don't exactly go that way. And that's the case with most projects I've worked on in my career and definitely with the nonprofit that um, that you mentioned that I'm chair of the board of. So you say you're doing the dream project right now, but that's rarely the way it works. How does it normally work? So normally what happens is you, um, you know, you have a nonprofit, you have some funding, you have a mission, you go out, you are working to achieve that mission through programs, education delivery, whatever your means may be. And then all of a sudden you uh, need more money and you go to fill out a grant proposal and the grant says, how many people have you served? What were the impacts of your program? And you say, oh no, wait a minute. Was anyone counting all of those people that we saw at that last health fair? Was anyone counting how many programs we had last year? Let's dig back through our files. Let's dig back through our emails and see, wait, this staff person left six months ago and they used to run that program. Does anyone know where they kept their information? And then everybody's scrambling to see what you can put together. But it also seems to me like what you're describing there is more the services that are being provided, like like the outputs, but not the, not the actual evaluation results of those services. So, you know, you did a program and 100 people came to it. What changed for those 100 people? That's definitely outcomes. What I, my message to your listeners today would be, do not underestimate the power of counting. Counting, yes, is just outputs, but you'll be very surprised how impressed, especially some smaller funders, you know, so if you're applying for 5,000, 10,000, even, you know, $50,000 foundation grants, just the fact that you can tell them what you've done in terms of outputs is really meaningful because they know that you're taking the time to pay attention to what you're doing. And then you can start to convert or look at, you know, can we convert these outputs into outcomes? But then um, if you can't, I always say, too, that's the funding opportunity. So you can say, you know, we did 31 educational programs last year. 310 people came. That was a 20% increase from the year before. We've heard people are leaving with a value. What we would like to ask you for are the funds to do a pre-post survey so we can see exactly what that value and impact is and tailor our programs to meet the needs of the community. Let's talk about outcomes in a minute then, because let's stay on outputs. You mentioned just counting is a good thing. What are some easy ways to count? 
So this is, you know, my step one that I would tell everybody to do is list everything you do. And then also list the impact that you want to have. So, you know, as you list everything you do, you can start to see, okay, are we one, are we counting that? And two, what else could we be counting? So going back to the educational programs, you know, we offer educational programs. Great. Can you count those? What else can you count? Can you count how many people came? Can you count how many resources you handed out? Can you count the number of referrals that you had to come in? So then you start to see how you can kind of form some of these outcomes by just counting over time, you can show the change in your program. So even if you weren't necessarily measuring, okay, you know, these were the exact outcomes of this educational program, if you can say to a funder, you know, we started with one class three years ago. Now we're offering 40 classes over the course of a year and the classes, you know, fill up within five minutes of us posting it online. All that is is counting. And so, you know, assuming that especially small and medium sized organizations don't have um, really sophisticated databases for tracking the data they're counting. What are some of the ways you recommend people actually track that data? So as you said, when the program manager leaves in six months, someone's not like, oh, where's the data from the program manager? Exactly. So it's always very important to know where you're putting this information. So that's also the usually the thing that comes up if people are collecting data, which, you know, a lot of times you're collecting something, right? Like people aren't just not collecting anything but it could be just in a pile of worksheets on a table and no one ever actually entered that information. So I definitely would encourage people to make a plan for how you enter that information. Excel is an extremely useful tool and a you know very easy tool to use especially just for counting, you know. So if you're putting things in an Excel document or even in a Google um, Excel doc that can be shared, whatever you all use, you know, if you use Dropbox and have a shared file on there, if there are multiple staff people entering the same information, it's good to keep it in one file. Um, or you can have, you know, if you're the manager of those people, you could have them each have their own files. But if you have access to that and are able to combine it once a month or once a week into the same file, just so you have a process for what happens with the data and you hold people accountable to that process, we found um, in the nonprofit where I'm a board member, we have found implementing this in staff meeting. It was a good way to, one, give people something to bring to the staff meeting, to share to the staff meeting. This is what I did since our last staff meeting. And then the manager is able to record that data there. And so you said Excel is good. You know, I've, I also know organizations that have had pretty decent success with Salesforce, which is pretty easy to build out. And I think they give like 10 licenses to nonprofits. Yeah, you can use a more sophisticated program, but I use Excel for the large project that I'm working on right now. You know, it's not a perfect means, but it was easy for the staff entering the data to use. They were familiar with it. They didn't have to learn a new program. And then I can do the analysis I need on the back end fairly easily. And, you know, I can copy it also easily into a different type of program if I need that. So if Salesforce is working for you and you have Salesforce, that's by all means an option and a, and a great way to enter data. But if you don't have that, Excel can work just as well. And so when you're copying that Excel data into another program, what program are you using? Really for the data, Excel can do a lot of things. If you, so I use it for all of my complex analysis. Um, you know, you can also use like SPSS or SAS, but for the type of analysis that 
I do most of the time, Excel is is just as useful. So once organizations have got that counting thing down and they're reliably counting their outputs, how should they be thinking about moving toward uh, really tracking outcomes? Outcomes can be sometimes a scary word or a tricky word when you start to think about it. Um, you know, what does that mean for us? Well, most of the time you're long-term outcome is your mission, right? That's where you can find your first outcome. What are you trying to do as an organization? But you're not going to be able to show, you know, we ended hunger. You know, that's not going to be an outcome that you're going to necessarily show progress on every six months. So start to look at those outputs and think, what are some short and medium term outcomes that we can show from these outputs? So for example, if you have a service that you're offering, do you want people to come back? Is that an outcome you can measure? You know, we have 30% repeat customers. So different things in those outputs that become your short and medium term outcomes. So you can show the funder what progress you're making. So can you give some real world examples of organizations you've worked with that have implemented outcome measurements and, and the types of things they've tracked? Sure. So one, um, really big project that whenever I came onto it, I, you know, was doing this kind of list in my head, what are our outputs? What are our outcomes? And so we knew that our outcome, you know, we were, so our biggest output was doing this survey with large employers about improving their wellness programs to be focused on chronic disease prevention. So we were doing the survey, are the staff were working with the organization to make changes And, you know, I had all these things that I could count. I could count all the different changes they were making. But then we weren't doing the survey again, like a year later, to show the change. So that was a really easy way that we were looking at all these outcomes or outputs and thinking about what outcomes we wanted and thought, well, if we just implement the survey again a year later or two years later and show the change in the score, all of a sudden we have an outcome. Right. And and I love that because that's totally low-hanging fruit. That should be really easy to implement as long as you still have access to those clients or patients. Exactly. Yeah. And these were, you know, relationship building clients that we had. So they had been working with them. It was just that we weren't using our same tool to measure again, to have that true evaluation-based outcome rather than saying, you know, and they implemented this policy, which is which is great to say, but whenever you can show the tool two times and show the change in the score, then that becomes a little more powerful. Yeah. I also love the fact that it's longitudinal because it's a year later, as opposed to like a one-time presentation where you do a pre and post. And yeah, you know, a lot of people remember stuff 90 minutes later, but how does it actually impact them? Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, for smaller programs, one, you could do that, though, if you aren't doing a pre-post survey. That's another thing where you can look at and say, you know, we have this service that we're offering. What if we all, you know, surveyed people when they came in and when they left? And that can seem really daunting to nonprofits sometimes, especially, you know, if you're serving a high need population, you don't want to burden people coming in with a survey. And then again, when they leave with the survey, but set a plan for it. Let's say, let's just do it on Saturday and see what happens and do it with this small group of people. And then maybe it's not, you know, what I generally find is that people are not as hesitant to take a survey as the staff feel that they might be. Well, one of the other things I think you're kind of alluding to, and, and I think is really, really critical is 
it's also possible to kind of say, okay, we're going to take this month and, you know, throughout this month, we're going to do pre-post when people come in. And you can probably extrapolate the data from that month to the other months as well. When you talk to funders, you can say, okay, you know, we took, we took the month of May and, you know, we did this pre-post, here's our results. And, you know, as long as you disclose that it's for one month, you can still represent that as your results. Yes. And it also, um, it brings up what you were talking about, the cleaning analogy at the very beginning it was making me chuckle because really what this whole process does, even if you are just counting, it gives you an opportunity to view this over time. So all of a sudden, as an executive director, you can look at these numbers and say, hey, we had a 30% increase from one month to another and ask your program staff, what happened? You know, did you guys advertise this? Where is it word of mouth? What's going on? Can we replicate this and do it again? Um, and it also gives you an opportunity to talk to your board about that information um, and also for budgeting. Yeah. So let's talk about how you take a lot of data and create just a little bit of high level data to share with your board and or funders. Yeah. So this is where the strategic plan comes in. You know, if you have a backbone to go back to, it helps you identify what is important. If you don't have that backbone to go back to, I would suggest thinking about, you know, if you're not quite ready for the strategic plan or don't have the strategic plan, think to yourself, okay, let's look at our mission. Let's look at what these data points are. What are the most important things that we want to communicate? And those are the things, you know, maybe one or two data points for each program. Um, You may want to focus, if all you have to focus on right now is numbers, you may just want to focus on people served across all your programs and start looking at that. Just start somewhere and do it consistently, and you'll be amazed at the types of trends you can start to see, the questions you'll get from your board or from your executive director if you start presenting this information that were, you know, things you hadn't thought of or things they had never thought of before. And, and so once you've got that backbone and you've got, you know, a few key pieces of data you want to be presenting to your board or to funders, what are some of the most effective ways to actually present it so that people understand and digest it? I use a lot of tables um, and you can definitely use figures, but I feel like whenever you are breaking things down, especially let's just take a grant, for example, you know, a grant application is generally going to ask you, what is your implementation plan or how do you intend to do this and how will you measure it? So what I usually do is make a table of here are the things that we're going to do step by step. And in each step and another column of the table, I list the, the outputs that you will measure. And then lastly, the outcomes that you'll be able to start to glean from that. And it's always important too to, you know, just from a timing give yourself some time for the outcomes, right? So that's why it's great to put those outputs that you're starting to measure first, because you may not be able to get to an outcome. You know, if you're not doing a survey till a year later, you're not going to start to see outcomes for a while. But you're at least telling that funder, hey, you know, even in step one, here's what I'm measuring. Step two, here's what I'm measuring. And then that feeds in to what I said will happen, you know, where our hypothesis of what will happen by the end of this grant. And, you know, I, I think certainly for government funders, we see that what they want is the data. And, you know, often they, they don't want it in a format that's pretty or easily digestible. But I do think with boards and also with major donors, it's really essential that that as nonprofit professionals, we figure out how to both 
interpret and translate this data into ways that people, maybe some people who don't even love numbers, can really understand. And one of the tools that I've used um, a, a good little bit are, are infographics. And, you know, we live in this really miraculous day and age where a cheap online platform like Vengage or something like that, so 15, 20 bucks a month, and you can make all the infographics you want. Yeah, people love infographics. And I'll even go a step back from an infographic for specifically for a uh, like a scorecard kind of thing that you're looking at. So infographic, I think wonderful to hand out to funders, um, you know, even to give to the board or something like that. But if you're really just measuring progress, the most successful thing that I have found is the red light, green light, yellow light. So people see the number, they kind of get the number you I've told them what the targets are, you're below target. But if you put on there green, yellow, red, they immediately know they immediately email you back and say, wait, why am I red? <laughs> you know, what am I doing? What can I do better? It's interesting you say that. And I can post this um, in the show notes, I can post a copy of this in the show notes. I'm a huge fan of giving boards a really simple one page dashboard that is green, yellow, red, you know, it, it typically depending on your organization has four to six sections in it. And each one of those sections only has three to five data points that are important for that section. So for example, there's one on finance, there's one on programs, there's one on fundraising. If you own or operate your own building, there's probably one on facilities. But really, so the board can see it at a glance. Okay, how are we doing? And then the board can elevate its conversations to a higher level of, you know, we don't focus a lot on the greens, on just that reporting out, here are the numbers we've done, but we focus on how do we turn yellows to green and reds to yellow. My advice on that would be as the executive director, or as a executive committee, whoever is setting up that process, set your standards because it's easy to say like, oh, I think that's green or I think that's yellow. But if you set a document at the beginning that says this is green, this is yellow, this is red, you can't fudge it when it comes time for the program and say, well, I know it's red, but we've been doing better and it's almost yellow. So I'm going to mark it yellow this month. Like, no, you just go with exactly what's on the sheet that you set at the beginning. And and I think when you're saying set standards, just so we're all on the same page, I think, for example, you're saying, um, if you're talking about program services, you know, anything, for example, maybe between 95% and up of goal might be green. And, you know, anything between, I'm going to again, make this up, 85% and 94% is yellow, and anything below 85% might be red. And it just, it's black and white, it's got to be one of those three. Exactly. And if you don't know, if that seems too daunting at the beginning, watch it for a month or two, see what the norms are, see what makes you a little scared, what makes you angry, and then set, you know, that's what I had to do with the most recent project I'm working on, because, you know, my expectations as an evaluator are one thing, people out actually seeing patients in the field, you know, that's a whole nother thing. Somebody doesn't feel well that day, somebody doesn't want to take my wonderful survey that I've asked them to take. So, you know, whereas maybe I wanted the numbers to be what you said, we actually ended up with 75% to 100 was green, you know, so there's a little more leeway once you start to realize like, okay, what's the reality? And also what's the average across? So if you if you do have the counting that we talked about, and you can look, okay, over the last year, our cash flow was x amount, we usually had, you know, this many dollars in the bank. That's how you can start to set those green, yellow, reds for whenever you're you're filling out your dashboard for the board. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about green, yellow, red coding is I also think it allows us to manage expectations. And so one of the things I'll often say to um, to boards and also to funders when I'm talking to them is 
it's not reasonable to expect a red to go directly to green. You know, the, the next stage probably for red is to get it to yellow. And, and, by, and most people kind of get that. You know, they, they understand that once you explain it. And, and so then you've actually got the time and the ability to do what's necessary to improve the red on the way to green and get it to yellow. And people then see that as an achievement and not as, well, you're at yellow. Why are you still at yellow? Yeah, exactly. And you can even, you know, if you're tracking the numbers in the box along with the color too, you can, you know, show the improvement over time. Um, you know, even if you stay in red, well, you went from 10% to 40%. So you made, you made progress. You know, that's something that we can see. Whenever I build my scorecards, I usually have the current, you know, here's the current scorecard. And then depending on what the time period is, I'll either have um, quarters. So, you know, here's where we were last quarter here's where we were two quarters ago three quarters ago right you know and and it actually gets easier after the first year because once you've done one year then the year over year is really simple assuming you're measuring the same things and you know your dashboard or scorecard has not changed dramatically you literally just you know pull up your last year's dashboard and you're like okay let me plug the numbers in exactly yep I would be remiss if we did not also, Shelby, talk about strategic planning because you are in a unique position. I think you're a board chair of a, of a local nonprofit here in Atlanta. Do you want to say a few words about uh, where you're board chair? Sure. Yeah. So I am board chair of In-Town Collaborative Ministries, which is now a mid-sized nonprofit in Metro Atlanta. We used to be a small nonprofit, so talking about that growth, but our mission is to help uh, hungry and homeless people in in-town Atlanta. So we operate a food pantry once a week, and we have an outreach team that reaches out to people who are chronically homeless in Atlanta. Being chronically homeless means you've been on the street for more than one year. So our team has had the great fortune of receiving um, some federal grants and some grants from the city to where we have now become the top outreach program in the city of Atlanta. And um last year housed 77 chronically homeless individuals. Well, first of all, you're doing important work in Atlanta, and I'm grateful for it. Second, I'm impressed. There's a lot of board chairs that could not have just gone into the depth that you went into on what your organization does. Um, And so third, now you have to talk to us about what your role has been in implementing their new strategic plan, because I know um, you've played a key role in it, and, and there might be a great opportunity for board chairs that are listening to kind of get a sense of of what their role might be? So I played a little bit of a unique role. I wanted to go back to what um, Kate Hayes had said on one of your previous podcasts about getting younger professionals involved in boards. So I was brought to in-town back in 2014 because of my evaluation and public health background. They knew that they needed to start to clean up their data or not even clean it up, but just, you know, get a plan around counting things. (laughs) Um, So I came and I started doing that work. We at the same time had been growing tremendously and had a strategic plan that was coming up to that last year of it, right? So there became this conversation, we need to have a strategic plan, we need to update our strategic plan, there's things in the strategic plan we're not doing anymore, you know, ways that we've grown and changed. Well, that went on for, I want to say, two years. So then all of a sudden we had a two-year out-of-date strategic plan. It was always on the priority list, but as with small nonprofits, you know, things are always coming up. Somebody's interested in a project, you find uh, a new grant. And so, you know, it just kept getting pushed until finally we decided to uh, put the time 
and the effort into it. And like you were saying at the beginning, um, so we ended up, we spent nine months to one year going through the strategic planning process. So I was not yet board chair um, whenever we started going through the process. I was on the strategic planning committee though. And we, we did hire a consultant, but because of my expertise, I worked directly with that consultant and we did a lot of the work together. So it ended up being a cost savings for the organization because I was able to pick up some of the extra work. You know, he still led us and facilitated and everything, but I did a lot of writing. Um, you know, we did collective editing and things like that together. But then, you know, once you get the strategic plan, it's such a long process and, you know, everyone's so excited. So we, at our board retreat last year, you know, this is it, we're going forward. How do we implement it now? You know, so it's great that we did all of this. So we actually ended up changing our committee structure to match their strategic plan. So we had five goals and we had previously had like five or six committees, which were basically the same, but not necessarily the same. And so we felt if we wanted to be successful in holding ourselves accountable to the strategic plan, then we should change our committee names and structure to match what was in the strategic plan. And then as board chair, what I've implemented is um, giving everyone a committee worksheet that has the objectives of their committee's, you know, piece of the strategic plan in that. And then before every board meeting, everyone is supposed to, you know, send in the progress on each of those objectives as part of their committee report. And, and so how do you tease out the work that staff are supposed to be doing versus the work that the board's supposed to be doing on that? Because I, I could maybe see some real gray and some bleed happening there. So we're a small organization. You know, we had seven staff. We've just hired um, or, or are hiring this month. We're going to double our staff size. So our board is very much a working board. Um, so there are, are those blurred lines, and we are growing up to unblur those lines and put more of that data collection on the staff that was previously on the board. The board also decided to have a staff member as part of each of the committees for those five goals areas. And so it's a partnership where the board is more providing the accountability of making sure we're keeping up with the information and data collection. And the staff are doing the actual work of the data collection. Got it. Got it. Um, so it sounds also to a great extent like your role as board chair has been a little bit of project manager for the board. Yes, a lot of a lot of project management, especially as we have gone through this time of change. You know, like I said, with um, whenever I was listening to what Kate was saying, it was really resonating. We have, you know, not just me, but we also have, I think, four younger consultants. So uh, with a lot of project management experience who have been really valuable during this strategic planning process. One of our board members did a full day with our outreach staff where she sat down and a lot of this information, like we were talking about, about earlier with the outputs was in their heads. A lot of it we weren't counting. So when we went through and said, you know, what are we counting? What do we need to count? A lot of what we needed to count wasn't there. So she sat down for a full day and just wrote all this down with them and then went back and made the Excel document that we were talking about earlier. Now we have all these graphs and then now they have that and they can update it as they go. But just that process of getting there, it's really helpful 
you know, you can, you can hire a consultant to do that. And, you know, if there's people out there um, who are happy to do that work for you, but if you are able to have that talent on your board, that's also a really great resource. Right. Absolutely. And so one of the other things, one of the pro tips, I think you're kind of giving to our listeners is um, just like you want a lawyer and a couple of accountants on your board, you probably want a couple project managers too, because they know how to get stuff done and they know how to track stuff. So everyone else gets stuff done. Yeah, exactly. Project managers. And then if you have any kind of like subject matter experts and you're, you know, so if you are a public health type organization and you have somebody with that type of that type of degree or background, that's always helpful, too. Well, so Shelby, I would be remiss if I did not save time to ask you our off the map question. And I've got a a good one, but an easy one. I think it's going to help listeners get to know you just a little bit better. I think listeners know we we don't do this live. We record. And we are recording on Friday, March 15th, the Ides of March. And, you know, you and I both live in Atlanta. So I'm just wondering what you're doing this weekend, because maybe I want to do it as well. I am running the Atlanta Marathon this weekend. So I don't know if you're going to join me on that one. (laughs) But yeah, I have a very, very big weekend coming up. You you definitely have a big weekend coming up. And is that on Saturday or Sunday? It's on Sunday, on St. Patrick's Day. Is this your first marathon? Yes, this is my first marathon. I started running when my um, second child was a year old, and I wanted to kind of get back some time for myself. And so it has slowly evolved from, you know, running down the street to where now, two years later, I'm going to try to run a marathon. That's awesome. (laughs) So I have to share with you, you I travel a lot and, and I kind of view running as my time alone when I'm traveling too. Cause like, you know, you don't need any equipment. All you need is a good pair of shoes, pair of shorts and a shirt and you can go running. But, uh, but yeah, so although I will share with you that I am not so much a marathon distance kind of a guy, I'm more of a, a 10 K kind of a guy. Yeah, I I think that's where I am too. You know, I did a half and and felt good, but this the marathon has been totally different. You know, after doing the half, I thought, oh, I can do this, but it's a lot of miles. <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a lot of miles and it's a lot of training. Yeah, the training has been a huge time commitment. So my my family is very excited for the race to be here, so I can be uh, back on Saturdays where I have been off running for hours. <laughs> So when I was on sabbatical in 2014, my husband and my husband's a triathlete, he decided to do a full Ironman. It's like, you know, the 142 mile event. And he did not ahead of time have the conversation with me about, okay, Dolph, you're going to have to pick up additional stuff in the house, you know, additional chores in the house, because every Saturday and every Sunday, I'm going to be running, biking, and swimming. For hours and hours. <laughs> yeah, especially toward the end when he was doing bricks. And so, you know, so he'd be like, okay, I'm going for a 70-mile bike ride and then a 10-mile run. And pretty much that means you leave at 7 o'clock in the morning and, you know, you get home at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you're wiped. You don't want to do anything. So toward the end of that, um, I, I, I said to him, you know, you did not tell me that I was going to have to, you know, really pick up the slack of what you're not able to do around the house. I'm happy to have been able to do do this because I'm on sabbatical this year. But if you want to do one of these again, you can do Olympic distance. You can even do half irons. If you want to do a full iron again, you need to go to your employer and tell them you'll be working part time. It is true. You know, I, I work from home, so it's easy for me to drop the kids off at school and then go to the gym. But I've thought that a lot, too. I was like, if I wasn't working for, from home right now, this would be impossible to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, 
Well, Shelby, good luck on the marathon this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're going to kill it. And um, and I hope you place in your age group. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm just hoping to finish. That's my, <laughs> no pressure. That's my goal. No pressure, really, I swear. <laughs> so, yeah. Shelby, I am so glad that you were able to take the time to talk with me today. You have given our listeners some incredible ideas about how to squeeze the most out of their data collection, whether it's just, hey, start by counting what you do, Or, you know, hey, it's time for you to transition and really start counting your outcomes and tracking your outcomes. And then I also appreciate you sharing how your organization that you're, you know, board chair of has really worked on implementing their strategic plan. I think so often organizations have a strategic plan, but don't really figure out the implementation piece well. And, And I'm thrilled that you have and that you shared that with our listeners. Thank you. Before I let you go, I've got to make sure listeners know how they can find you. They can find you on LinkedIn, and we're going to put a link to your LinkedIn profile in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And I think you and I have chatted, and that is the single best way for listeners to reach out to you is on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's great. And if you if you want, we can also put a link to Intown Collaborative Ministries organization if people are listening in Atlanta and interested how they can get involved. I, you know, you are a great board member and a good board chair. I'm impressed. And thank you for throwing that in. I will make sure we get that in the show notes as well. Um, Kudos to you. Thank you. Thanks. If you recall at the start of the show, I mentioned that we have a very special offer around strategic planning. This spring, Successful Nonprofits is launching its first strategic planning facilitator cohort group. And in this group, participants will learn and apply the proven strategic planning process that we have used with clients both big and small. What you've got to do, though, is you've got to have a leadership volunteer who has the time and the ability to participate in this group and also, of course, the willingness then to facilitate strategic planning at your organization. And let me share with you that this is without a doubt a learning group but also a doing group. So not only will your key volunteer learn about our strategic planning process, they will apply what they learn. And so one week, they learn something, and then over the next two weeks, they implement it, whether that's putting together the work group or working on your environmental scan or preparing for the board retreat. Step by step, they will learn what they need to do, and then they implement. Now, Because we only want organizations that we believe are going to succeed in this process, organizations do have to apply in order to be considered. And so what we will need to do is have a conversation about the key volunteer that you have recruited. And then I'll, of course, also want to have a conversation with that volunteer, really to make sure they've got the bandwidth and, again, the skills that are necessary. So if you are interested, you can find out more at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Just check under services and then facilitate a cohort group. Thanks so much. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.